Today is a return guest. It's the return of Nikon Ambassador Moose Peterson to Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot, the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. I'm Steve Brazel, and we have a return guest today. We'll bring him on in just a second. I do want to remind you, if you want to see anything having to do with this show, show notes for today's show, a small gallery of images from any of the guests for any particular show, head to the website. Again, it's at BehindTheShot.tv. And if you want to find me, it's at SteveBrazel.com. Makes it really, really easy. Also, a lot of you watch on YouTube. Some of you also watch through a normal podcast app. Wherever you get this show... Please, if you would, leave us a review, a star rating. It definitely helps with you know, the algorithms and surfacing the show to people who don't know about the show. If you are watching in a, a podcast app or service like Pandora or something like that, this show is available in two forms. You can get the audio only or a video version, assuming that your service supports video like Apple Podcasts does. And if you're watching on YouTube, the uh, statistics there tell me that a lot of you are not subscribed. About... 60%, something like that, are not subscribed. So if you would, please head down, click the subscribe button, click the bell. That will get you, you know, notifications every time I do something new, whether it be a normal show, whether it do be the uh, the image critique shows that I do with my buddy Don Komarechka. Uh, that way you'll just know about everything. Now, last thing before we bring the guest in, and that is if you have not heard about the workshop that I'm doing in October, the Wanderers Photo Workshop in New Orleans, it's the chance for you to visit a destination city like New Orleans and do street photography. We've got Aunt Pruitt doing that. We've got Andrew Scrivani doing food photography. Uh, Freddie Clark is also doing food photography. This is his brainchild, the Wanderers photo, uh, photo Workshop, and the music of the city. I'm doing concert photography. It's one amazing workshop, and if you want information on it, it's all at wanderersphoto.com. And that brings us to today's guest. Now, before I, I introduce him again and bring him in, my dad was in the Air Force. My dad flew P-40 Flying Tigers, and he flew P-51Ds, P-51 Mustangs, and he was in Korea. And when this guest was on my show the first time, we did what he's famous for or most known for is probably a better way to word it. And that is wildlife or nature photography. But this time, Moose Peterson is back to talk aviation photography. Moose, how are you? Steve, I am doing great. Thanks for having it, it me back so good again. To see I love you. the show. Uh, I, I'm so glad that you're back. As I said and, and you and I have discussed this a little bit. I ran into you after you were on the first time. We talked at Photoshop World a little bit. I was standing in the distance and I saw you over there and I'm like, you know, I don't know if he'll remember me, but I kind of want to go say hi. And I walked up and we talked about your aviation photography because a lot of people do aviation photography. Uh, I've had a friend on who photographs for the Air Force and Coast Guard and all, you know, we're talking fighter jets, from fighter jet mm -hmm. to fighter jet, that type of aviation photography. But your stuff is generally the classic warbirds, P-51s, P-40s, all these you know biplanes, right? Like we're going to talk about a little bit today. And mm -hmm. it it reminds me of my youth and talking to my dad after he retired about his his love of the old warbirds. Um, for those that missed you the first time around, let's talk about you a little bit. You are a Nikon ambassador for Nikon USA. I am very honored and humbled to be one, but yes, I am. I'm one of the originals. And that's what I was going to ask. You have been, how long has it been that, that they've had this program? Oh, uh, 
It's going on a decade now, I think. And and being one of the originals, you're the perfect person to ask this question. Explain for those people who don't understand ambassador programs, and all manufacturers have them, right? You have you know Panasonic people and Fuji and Canon Explorers, et cetera. For those that don't understand the Nikon ambassador program, explain it. You know, it's a real, actually a common question. And it's not like Nikon has actually put into a sentence, this is what the program is. But in a nutshell, uh, Nikon wants to expand people's understanding, education, and passion for photography. And they enable us ambassadors, you could say, take some time from making a living and spend more time with photographers and helping them grow their photography and their love for photography. That's what the ambassador program is about. Some people think we're here to help them uh, get their repairs done faster or to uh, buy some equipment at a better price. Uh, But we're here for inspiring education and love for photography. That's our role as Nikon ambassadors. And and there's a couple of ambassadors who I am huge fans of, uh, people like Matthew Jordan Smith, Deb Sandage, who has been on the show before and is a couple days after we record this, but it'll be you know, in the past when this show goes live, uh, is going to be on the critique show with me and Don Komarechka as the third panelist doing an image critique show with us, the the wonderful Joe McNally, and then Todd Young, who's in my genre. And Todd and, and Joe on Twitter to me are kind of the, the, the summation of what you just said. Todd on a mm-hmm. regular basis, Joe on a regular basis, are encouraging people and posting just motivational things, Todd with his blog posts. Um, it really is. It's the type of program I think more people need to be aware about and and, uh, and what, take advantage oh, of. Oh, yeah. There are, uh, I, I mean, I'm completely humbled the group of photographers that I am among uh, as an ambassador. And yeah, Todd, uh, I don't know where he finds the time because his posts are nothing but helping other people in so many different ways, uh, in so many different genres. Uh, Joe's Joe, uh, you know, he's iconic and, and, and that's all you have to say about Joe, but yeah, you got Matthew and Dave Black, uh, uh, Keith, uh, who is just everywhere. Amy, uh, Deb, um, uh, all those people are just, uh, amazing folks who, you know, with, the help of Nikon, we're able just to to spread ourselves so thin, helping everybody we can, as well as our own visual storytelling. So it's quite a community, uh, and especially during uh, the pandemic, we were on Zoom a lot as a, a group, um, talking not so much f stops and shutter speeds, but just life, uh, dealing with business when you couldn't. So many of those people are social. Uh, shooters and they have to be in a, a social setting to function. Uh, I didn't have to worry about getting COVID from critters. So I was kind of immune from it. Uh, but those others, they felt the pressure. Yeah. And I should say, since we brought up Todd, Todd Young's website is ishootshows.com. And when I started out in music photography, uh, which was not that long after Todd. I started very late in life, but when I when I started in music photography, that was one of the websites I went to 
for constant flows of information that helped me be a better live music photographer, a better understand, you know, how to do live music photography. You, and by the way, Joe McNally too, if you've never seen Joe McNally do a keynote, which I've seen a couple of times at Photoshop World, serious people, where have you been? Go go watch it because I could watch McNally talk all day long, every day. Um, it makes sense to me that you were one of the first. Because when you were on the first time, we did a, a, a photograph of a moose. No pun on the name, but you're famous for your wildlife photography. And one mm -hmm. of the things I love about your wildlife photography, and we got into it in that show, is the fact that you're not making fine art in the sense of crazy colors and, and lots of post-processing. You're trying to document a species accurately. And mm -hmm. through that, you're the recipient of the John Muir Conservation Award. You are a research associate with the Endangered Species Recovery Program. And this one I didn't know about until I did more research for this show. The creative producer and photographer for a film, Warbirds and the Men Who Flew Them. Tell me about that. Well, uh, I guess it's kind of the natural evolution for us old farts. We go from <laughs> stills into moving. And documentaries... You know, still, you have a couple challenges. One is the fact that most of the subjects you're photographing are moving. So you have to then bring that motion to the still. When you're filming, uh, you kind of have that luxury of not so much implying the movement. Then you have the challenges, though, of bringing other elements into it. So very fortunate Scott Kelby produced uh, Warbirds, The Men Who Flew It. It was based on my experience working with the amazing Texas Flying Legend Museum and their squadron aircraft and the World War II veterans who uh, we worked very hard to get their stories out for a couple of reasons. One, the veterans themselves don't they don't look for a stage. They don't look for a limelight. They are, you know, they came back from World War II and they just went back into society and and many of these these folks are, you know, pushing 100, if not a little bit over. And getting their story out before they they pass on is very important to us. So in that documentary, I had everything, everybody from uh, Dick Cole, who is a very dear friend, number of Tuskegee Airmen, uh, 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 drawing a blank on the other, some of the other gentlemen who are in there, because um, I had like... Uh, Major General Charles McGee, uh, who is one of the original Red Tails, who is in the last two years has gotten really a lot of national uh, recognition for all he did in World War II in Korea and, and Vietnam and afterwards. So that's what it was all about, the aircraft and honoring these gentlemen and basically giving all of us the freedoms to pursue these things that really mean something to us. Where, where can people see this or find this? Well, it's uh, it's permanently housed at the Kelby One website. You can watch it there. Uh, it hasn't gotten any place else. You know, it's it was supposed to go to um, oh Redford's uh, uh, oh Sundance. Uh, thank you. It was supposed to go to Sundance and. They have quite a few requirements, and we had to add 90 seconds to the cut to make the requirements. 
and life got in the way in life, and we just didn't get that 90 seconds in there to get it done. Uh, but there's a number of documentaries we've been working on that are not out, uh, and that just happened to be the first one. Yeah, the first thing that hits me is is I'm not far from, uh, which is now a reserve base, but at the time was a a you know very strategic air base, March Air Base in Southern California, and mm-hmm. they have uh, an air museum there. And I bet you mm-hmm. the people there would be really interested in that. You are an author, 29 books. Yep. Wow. Yep. Okay. Uh, and this one intrigues me. And and it ties into what we're going to talk about today, which is aviation photography. But you have kind of an unusual thing coming up. Because having gotten to know you a little bit over the years, you are not shy uh, when it comes to technology, Right. You were one of the first digital camera users, and you you are cutting edge technology quite often when when you do things, and mm-hmm. you have an aviation photography seminar coming up. But correct me if I'm wrong here, because this is not something I've commonly seen in the in the photography space. You're teaching now that the pandemic is pretty much past us, or at least enough that we can do in person meetings. You are teaching this aviation photography seminar in person, in a class with attendees, but. You're also streaming it online to attendees. Is that correct? That is correct. Tell We're me about one this. of the first to, to do that. Well, there's it's 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 a two pronged thing. Uh, part of it's selfish, and part of it is not. Uh, during the uh, pandemic, I had to do a lot of presentations via Zoom, which uh, I got information out, but I got nothing, uh, no reaction from the audience. And I'm telling you, I was dying on the vine because I didn't hear laughter. I didn't smiles. I couldn't read a face to see if if what I was saying was making sense or not. Um, so I need that feedback. As I keep telling folks when when we I try to teach, is that the more questions you ask, the more you jar my thick head, and, and stuff comes out that that's in there that I just don't remember to to say. So that's part of the reason why I'm doing it in front of an audience. And then I don't want my audience to be that limited. Uh, aviation photography goes on around the globe, and it's been growing and growing in the number of photographers out there, you know, in part of this really cool genre. And I, I feel a little responsible for getting some of these guys into it, but not giving them all the information to truly uh, make the impact they want to make with their photography. So that's why I'm combining both of those. And lastly, well, I just wanted to see if we could do it. See, there's that's it. There's the moose that I know that likes technology. I As soon as I found out about this, you posted a poster or something on, on it might have been Instagram, might have been Twitter, I don't remember. But as soon as I found out about this, I immediately retweeted it to or or tagged my friend Scott Dworkin, who is the guy who was saying he's been on the show before. It was, I think, mm-hmm. uh, two, I'm trying to remember, were they Hornets? They might've been F-18 Hornets. They might've been F-6, I, I don't remember. But it was playing to plane. Hornets, if I remember right. Yeah. Uh, over, over, I think it was Arizona or something like that. But I, I said it to him because I knew that he would be in love with this. Now, as far as the date is concerned, what is the date of the actual workshop? So the broadcast will be on January 31st, 9 a.m. Central Time. Okay. So this right now, we're recording this in early July, but the slate right now is that this will run on the 29th of July, which means 
if you're watching this right now, the day it came out or the day after it came out, you've got like a day or two to go get registered because it's this is going to come out on a Thursday and the seminar is on a Saturday. So move quick. Where do the people go? Head to moosepeterson.com. As soon as you go there, the banner will pop up. Click on it and you're in. Okay. So again, 31st of July, if you're watching this after that, my apologies, you can't go. But I would still recommend that you go watch Moose's site because if he's done it once, odds are he may do it again, right? So be aware of that. But if you if you see it right away, get there quick because it's two days after this goes live. What were you going to say? Well, we're, we've uh, the response, to be honest with you, has been greater than we expected. You know, I didn't expect to be, you know, kind of inundated. So we have now made it so the broadcast will be available for six months after we actually do it live. And we're talking about actually making it available. If you can attend, that you can then pay the same seminar fee and then watch the, you know, what you call a rebroadcast on the internet at a different time at your convenience. So even okay, if they so can't make it go. the 31st, they might still be able to, to do that. We haven't, like you said, we're, we're doing something new. I mean, we did a, a, a my technical guru, I have two of them. Uh, the one who will be with me is my oldest son, Brent. And we did a, a rehearsal uh, this past weekend with all the notebooks, the cameras, the, the everything, the presentation, the monitors and stuff. And, and a knock on wood, it went seamlessly the first time. So we thought, okay, let's just add more, see if we can make it more complicated until it breaks. That's what you do. So that's kind of cool, though. Yeah. So people can sign up afterwards. So that that brings the question to me, because anybody who's ever been to a Photoshop world follows Kelby, knows who you are. They know that you are known for that wildlife and nature and landscape type outdoor photography. Mm -hmm. What brings a Moose Peterson in general? I mean, we understand, you know, what you were talking about before with the with the film, but just in general, what what drew you to aviation photography? Um, uh, the shorter, the long answer. Which one do you want? Well, let's, let's go middle. Middle. Well, uh, like you, I, I'm the generation where our fathers were involved in the military, World War II, Korea. My father was in the Air Force in a B-29 for both those uh, actions. And as I grew up, we went to a lot of air shows. And he had a passion Same. for flight, uh, no matter what. You know, I, when I was very little, um, we'd all get in a station wagon on a Sunday. We'd go to LAX, and we'd watch people go and come and go off commercial flights because back there there was no TSA, that kind of stuff. We would go to LAX. We'd... I'd press my face against the window and I watch those jets come in and go out. So it's just part of, you know, who I was. And then when the D3 first came out, uh, my good friend Scott with Nikon MPS was at the Reno Air Show. And I said, hey, you get me in and get me to the pylon. I'll volunteer, uh, which I do a lot. And uh, I'll take pictures and help everybody with this new technology. We so should probably add, by the way, for people yeah. who don't know the history, the Reno Air Show is one of the most well-known air shows in North America. My father used to go to the Reno Air Show all the time. Uh, air races, well, we too. 
Well, yeah, I've got to clarify. It's races, not air show. Yeah, air races. Mm-hmm. That's the fastest motorsport in the world. And so we were part of that. And I was, you know, shooting with a D3, shooting with a 500 F4, that particular event. And panning uh, something in the sky is what I've done forever. That's what you do as a wildlife photographer. So panning with an aircraft wasn't really that much more of a challenge. I could keep up with it. Just had a slow shutter speed, which that is a challenge for most. For myself, it's not. And, you know, you're, you're 50 to 75 feet away from something doing 400 miles an hour. There's no way you cannot just go crazy and say, I got to do this all the time. You get You get hooked on that speed. And that's what... You know, I was already into aviation, but the aviation photography, you know, that was 2008 when that sunk in. And, and right after that air show, I had an air-to-air shoot. It was my literally my second one. And it was an 18-minute shoot with a P-51D. Came down after wow. 18 minutes, and the pilot fell in love with them, and he, he bought $5,000 worth of prints. So there's not a rock or a rabbit that's going to pay me $5,000 for 18 minutes of my time. So it was not rocket science to say, hey, I love this, you know, and I get paid for it. Let's continue it. So here's a question, though, because you made a comment that being a wildlife photographer, panning came naturally to you, panning with aircraft, even though, granted, they're moving a heck of a lot quicker. So what is the main difference between shooting wildlife and aviation. What, what's the main hat that you have to change mentally? Uh, for me, none, actually. Uh, so aviation photography for me is a, is a combination of wildlife and landscape, uh, where the aircraft is the wildlife and the background is the landscape photography. And that's probably why I was so successful so quickly, is uh, there was no hats to change. There was no anything other than to learn more history. Uh, anybody who knows me knows I, I, I have this uh, burning desire or need to know about the subject, uh, what's going on with that subject. Not that it's just a P51D, but there was an A, B, and C before it. And, you know, the, the transitions between not only airframes and power plants, but the role that it served during World War II, and all that goes into the thought process of making the photograph. So for myself, no matter what it is, whatever the photograph happens to be, just having it a sharp image and exposure correct, um, that's not the end. That, that's, that's barely the, the beginning requirements for that photograph for, for myself or to be successful. Interesting. Okay, so that's a good segue. Let's bring up this shot. So this airplane that we're about to discuss today is an Aero C-104, otherwise known as? A Booker. A Booker. Okay. And this is just, first of all, the plane itself is stunningly gorgeous, right? Absolutely love this plane. But then there's the scene that it's in. Before we get into describing it, so something I do now, I don't, I don't remember if I did this in the first show because I've, I've introduced it in later shows, is 
for those of you that are listening on audio, I am going to try and verbally describe this photo to you. And yeah, exactly. It's 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 a crapshoot every time, but it's still kind of fun to do. And and uh, hopefully those driving in a car can at least in their mind's eye picture the photo until they can get to the website at BehindTheShot.tv and actually see the photo or if they can go watch the video a little bit later. But let's start here. From an exposure point of view, uh, this it EXIF data shows that it was shutter priority. Is that correct? That's yeah. Any prop plane I photograph is in shutter priority. Okay, so you you really care about your shutter speed. Is, yes. Is, is there an aim you're aiming at? Is is that because there's always a shutter speed you generally want? Uh, there is not one common shutter speed for for myself or aviation. Uh, you're juggling a lot of balls when you're photographing aircraft air to air. You're choreographing the flight. You're looking at the light and the exposure and the color, but also the story you want it told. Uh, that prop turning, it, if it's if it's done one way, that's all you see is the prop. And if you want to see the aircraft and the story, it's another. So there's a lot that goes into it. So there. there there isn't, uh, I mean, I go anywhere from literally 20th of a second, one over 20, up to probably 125th of a second in, in varying shutter speeds when photographing a, a prop-driven aircraft. So this was, again, according to EXIF data, correct me if any of this is wrong, but it was uh, one one-hundredth of a second, correct. ISO 100. Always. What were, what were you at aperture and, and uh, zoom-wise? Uh, I was at F10. And the uh, zoom, I was using the Nikon Z7200 2.8, and I was at 130 millimeters. Okay. And so this was on a Nikon Z series body then? Correct. Z62. And I need to add that there was a 1.4 teleconverter, uh, the Z teleconverter attached. And I had that on there because it allows me to have a smaller f-stop, which sometimes I need based on the... Uh, the amount of light that's coming in. One th one thing I saw in, actually two things that I saw in the EXIF data was, again, you're in shutter priority. It looks like you had an exposure bias of minus one third stop. Yep. It also yep. shows manual white balance as Correct. being set to cloudy. But the yep. sky here doesn't look cloudy. Is there a reason you're choosing that manual white balance? <laughs> yeah, because I'm You just moose. want the warmth? <laughs> no, no. So white balance is not an arbitrary number. Uh, it is very much part of the entire exposure. Uh, just take an image into Adobe Camera Raw and change the white balance and watch what happens to highlights and shadows. It's very much a part of it. Now, in this case, I'm very much old school. Uh, the light is low on the horizon. It's bouncing off blue sky and off white snow. And if I were to shoot in uh, auto white balance in this scenario, as we're doing, uh, we're literally on the border of Cal uh, Canada and Washington during the shoot over the Alps there. Uh, we're just, you know, eight nautical miles from the border. And all this combination, uh, I want to be in control of that light so it's consistent white balance. Uh, basically because of the aircraft, uh, the black and the gold. Uh, this plane is, the Booker was the Luftwaffe's main trainer for World War II. 
uh, its flight characteristics are amazing. And after uh, World War II, uh, some of these Bukers were uh, some were smuggled out. And then later on, they were made under license in Czechoslovakia, and people absolutely loved this plane. Uh, this particular actual aircraft was owned by a guy named Myra Slovic, who grew up under the Nazi regime in Czechoslovakia and then uh, became a Soviet satellite, I guess is how they called it back then. He saw the, uh, well, just the disaster that came from being under the Soviet communism thumb. So he was an airline pilot trained uh, by the, the incredible system took a DC-3 C-47 and escaped Czechoslovakia and went to Germany. And because of he's working uh, as a pilot for the Soviets, they had given him a special package to deliver to the airport he was supposed to go to. They didn't know he was going to Germany to escape. And this package was full of secret plans for a brand new air base the Soviets were going to make for the Cold War era. So Myra wow. then came to the States where he won the very first Reno air race. And this was his plane. And that's why I love aviation. You can't get any more interesting history uh, than following the, the lineage of an aircraft. Well, and, and, not, and, and not just the aircraft, obviously the pilots too. So for those of you on audio, I'm going to do this and – each, it's funny, each time I do this, I feel like it's the hardest shot that I've ever tried to describe. But this one is intricate in, in what you're going to see in this shot if you take the time to really look at it. So you're flying over. I feel like I should go picture if you will. You're flying <laughs> over. Yeah, it's one of those type things. So you're flying over snow-capped mountaintops. Behind the snow-capped mountaintops, You've got beautiful blue sky with very, very thin clouds. I mean, extremely thin clouds. Just at the top of the mountain, there are scattered pine trees around. And what I like about that story-wise is, if you know anything about snow-capped mountains and pine trees, as you get to the top peaks, there are no pine trees there. It's just snows just snow. And that tells you kind of the altitude that you're at. So you kind of know about where you are vertically in this particular shot. If you look back from where you are, like you're flying. And if you look back over your right shoulder, you see a classic biplane, the particular plane that we've been talking about. But what I love about it is it feels like you are there. It is so darn realistic looking. The colors of the snow, the colors of the trees. So many people punch up the sky, which look, if that's what you want to go for, okay, cool. But this this makes me feel like I'm looking out the window of an of a plane traveling somewhere and this is what I would actually see. However, the colors on the biplane that you're looking at are very rich, not artificially rich, right? But the light blue sky behind it, the, the, the pale, natural, not deep blue sky accentuates the colors in the plane as having not been oversaturated, but just being bright. And here's what's cool. The pilot is in the backseat of this biplane 
and looking right at you. Mountaintops are at the lower third. The plane is mostly above the mountains, except the landing gear drops down into the snow and into the mountains. And the plane, it is coming from frame right. The pilot is almost to the point of center. And then there's what I call nose room. There's room for the plane to move on the left-hand side of the frame. There's so much here that adds to that story. Did I miss anything? No, the only thing you you don't know is the the rest of the story that I haven't told you yet. Okay, which then begs the question, first things first, where you kind of told us you're just near the border here, but how do you get a gig like this? Okay, well, so that's the business side. That's a great part of the story. Uh, The current owner of the aircraft, uh, a good friend of mine, restored this aircraft for him. And my client was twofold. Uh, The first mostly important client was the guy who restored the plane, not the actual plane owner. And he's out of Spokane, Washington. So he's the one that you could say got the gig for me. And the, the actual plane owner and the pilot, I wouldn't say he was 100% sold on Moose Peterson photographing his aircraft. So that made it a little bit of a challenge. He, he knew of me, of my work. Uh, he had been told by everybody on the field that I was the guy for the job. But he definitely had his own opinions of how he wanted it done. Now, I told you about Myra, the first owner of this aircraft. The second owner, well, he was a a geologist, and he actually used his photograph to photograph and understand the geology of all these mountains you see in the background. That was his whole thing. This plane is very light, very nimble, doesn't use much gas, a real speedster, acrobatic aircraft. And so he used that aircraft to do literally geological work. So the current owner, he wanted that theme of that background in the photograph, which is why we, we you had a probably about a 65, 70-minute leg to get up there, which I'm shooting the whole time going up, shooting the whole time coming back. And then we, we went around and around and photographed. There's a number of uh, uh, peaks, and there's a, a ridge line that's called Gunsight. And all those needed to be in the background. Uh, And that was a bit of a challenge because he had a very, like I said, a real opinion what he wanted. So getting him moved around for who I thought was truly the client, and that was my photo platform pilot who restored the aircraft, we kind of manipulated the situation because he has to follow us to get the picture. And after the, the shoot was done and after I delivered the prints, the plane owner thinks I, I now walk on water. But up until that <laughs> moment, it was a bit of a, a tooth pull. You, you said something in an email to me. You said the story behind these images is more than anyone can even imagine from aviation, Cold War survival, Reno air races, and the business of photography. So that's the business side. We talked about the Cold War survival side and the Reno air race side. The, the aviation side is you know, somewhat, I, I think, obvious almost here, but you, you just alluded to something that, that was interesting, and that was you guys set it up 
because he had to follow you to get the shot. Mm-hmm. But again, you wanted this environment in the shot because of the owner and, and, and et cetera. But composition, when you've got two aircrafts in the air, lining up you, it's not just lining up the plane to the scene behind you. It's making sure you're at the right angle to the plane that you're trying to photograph, speed, altitude, all of that um, is just crazy. And you sent me a couple of other shots. So I want to jump into some of these other shots. So here's the shot that we're talking about. But you've also got this one, which is more of a, a, a tight close-up. Like you're right in front of them. The plane's at a 45-degree angle. It's nothing but mountains and shadow behind them. Again, the pilot looking right at you. I love it. Just enough. This is, by the way, this is where your shutter speeds come in. I see it now. There is actually, on the edge of the blade, you can't really see the prop, but on the edge of the blade, there's a spectral highlight there that, that's mm-hmm. really, really cool and, and adds to it. You've got this one with just like water in the background. I'm guessing yeah. it's, it, so you must it's be really lake. low here. I have them on the deck, yeah. Wow, amazing. And then these are the type of shots that you do that I'm not gonna lie, these melt me. There is something about the lighting that you get when you're on the ground with a plane and it's warm and and it's that time of day and the sky is gorgeous. And then you move around and you shoot the tail end of a plane looking straight down at perfect symmetry. That's what we call the arse shot because you can't say ass. It's not politically correct. No, but I mean, seriously, these shots are absolutely amazing. So, well, thank you. When you're in the air with the limitations that you have, which, which you cannot oversell, right? There are extreme limitations on composition. So when you're in well, the air, the trying first to limitation do this, safety, got to keep that in mind. Exactly. So that's what, the first limitation. What are your knowing those limitations going in? Positioning, speed, angle, altitude, safety. Is there an overriding? overarching plan? Yes. So the entire flight is choreographed before you leave the ground. It's called a brief. Okay. Uh, and there is a... Goes back to my dad and old uh, training, but you, uh, you have to kind of know your resources before you start this, which means you have to know your pilots. In this case, my photo platform pilot uh, I know explicitly, I know his skills, and I, I have to trust him a lot in telling me if the pilot that I'm about to photograph is safe to be with. Uh, this particular pilot, very, uh, I mean, he's a commercial pilot. He flies passengers in a commercial jet for a living. Uh, he used to fly this air aircraft, the Booker, doing aerobatic shows. Very skilled. With that said, you still have to listen to directions. Uh, No matter what you do for a living uh, or who you are, listening to directions can be a challenge, especially when you have opinions. So all that goes into play. Uh, And like I mentioned, he was really stuck on these mountains. 
and turned out his favorite photographs were the ones of the water, which really when I yeah, well when you looked I look, so you you have to do that pilot thing, and not that I'm proficient, but you you get out their maps and you look at the the routes and you, you, you and pilots do these things. You look at the topography. You look what you know the route we're going to take and. I'm really well known that when I when I leave the ground, as soon as we get up, I'm at work. We're not just going to loaf somewhere, then shoot and loaf back. We're going to make every minute count because that's time, that's money. Uh, so we plan the route to get over that water. And then the time of day, it just takes looking at a map, looking at a compass, and looking at the direction of light. You could determine you know, how you're going to choreograph the flight. Uh, the one picture you liked where he looks like he's coming directly at me. Yeah. He's, we're actually, both aircraft are moving parallel. The thing is, it's, it's, it's uncoordinated flight. So in other words, you've got the photo platform is like this, but it's moving through the air this way. And then you've got the other plane. It's like this. So normally you're flying like this, taking the shot. In this case, one's, right letter, rudder, left rudder, and you're flying through the air this way, but it looks like he's about to come right into me, but he's literally traveling this direction. Uh, it's a very simple technique, and I always use a longer lens, so we have a, a longer margin of safety, and then I plan that, uh, one, cranking that plane for both pilots, the photo platform and the subject. That's just a lot of... A lot of uh, isometric leg muscle exercise. So I tend not to hold it for more than 90 seconds and then I let him relax. And then, so it's planned. I look ahead. Uh, I look literally, I'm shooting out a big hole in a plane. There's no door. Um, safety harness to the floor. I look ahead. I look at the light and I look at the direction in which the light's going to hit the subject, the shot you like. I knew that I wanted that darker background so that black fuselage which is also dark would have a glint of that light along that gold stripe and then there would be that uh, highlight on the prop that you are so uh, intelligently and aware of when you uh, look to the picture but doesn't that make so, the shot it that makes the shot but you just brought up something that i want to know yeah because you you obviously here have very little you can aim at the light you can choose your direction but but you have very little control. It's not like you can throw a diffuser up there and hold it out the window. So in a shot like this, you're going to get clipped highlights. You're going to get spe you know, specular highlights. Do you worry about those highlights at all? Do you try and underexpose to save those? Or it's like, look, the eye is going to see a... If I looked at this out the plane, I'd probably see an area that was pure white too. Do you think about that? or What do you think? Well, knowing you, yes, you do. It's all in the plan. So, yeah, it is. Uh, it's considered. Now, you mentioned that I underexpose a third of a stop. Uh, that's for two things. One is I want the better color. Uh, and two, because that will protect any highlights that would okay. in range I could protect. Otherwise, I let him go. You know, as soon as he said I'm, he wanted against the, the Alps there, the white snow, and I have a black aircraft, I mean, the light range is is going to be whack no matter what I do, right? which is why we planned, uh, and one of the things you have to think about when you plan these, not every aircraft can fly at night. Uh, 
for, you know, if you look at the, the Booker, there's no landing lights on it. So when he comes, he wants to be down on the ground before the sun's gone. There's no, so you have to consider all of that. So there's travel time, there's shoot time, there's travel time back and landing, bef- you know, while he can still land. Cause not every aircraft, like I mentioned, can continue at night. And of course, photography doesn't continue at night either. Right. So all that goes into the brief uh, before you even leave the ground. So processing wise, would you have done a lot to this in post or not? The only thing that was done in post on this is, uh, and, and if anybody ever wants to see all that process, they just go to Kelby One. I have a whole class on finishing aviation aircraft. All I've done is the aircraft gets selected, and I use a high pass on it, so then uh, all the little rivets and stuff will have a little bit of a polish to them. And that's all that was done in this photograph when it comes to finishing. Wow. Um, you know, I'm kind of uh, an old school fanatic, and what you see is 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 what I took, and I. It's just you know that's why the white balance is set the way it is, and everything else. I want it to be finished. And here's the flip side and the business side. Um, most, I, I can't say every, but almost every single pilot I've ever photographed. Before the, the props even stop turning when we hit the ground, they're over to the plane and they want to say, how to look, what you get. And they want right. to look at the back of your camera monitor to see what you've got for a number of reasons. First, and they will deny this, but I, I, I argue the point, uh, they, they have an ego and they want to see how good they look. Uh, two, they want to see the technical side. How was their flying? Uh, a lot of pilots look at the photographs to judge themselves and learn, you know, about their flying. And lastly, it's the gratification of knowing that 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 photograph now exists. Plane owners and pilots have a lot of pride in the aircraft. And if they're like, you know, most of us, you know, anybody else, they kind of want to have it around to look at. But it's hard to park a plane in your living room, right? right. Even though I know two two owners who do have their planes in the living room. That's another story. But my print will be on their wall. And that print uh, it means a lot to them. Uh, it's a real sentimental thing. So, okay, speed round time. I'm going to ask a couple of questions. The idea is first answer that pops into your head. We're just going to rifle through these. So okay. number one, most people will not be photographing air to air. But for those that do go to their local air shows or whatever, what is your top tip for aviation photography from the ground? Shoot everything that's static first. Oh, okay. That's an interesting well, one. So we just we just labored the point of all the things that I saw in the viewfinder were shooting air to air, right? Right. Where's that learned from? It's learned on the ground. Uh, I have models that I I. One sixteen scale models here in the office. I get down on the ground. I look at them. And then when I go out and at an air show, I go and look at those statics. I walk all around them. I look around them. What's the best angle? What's the best light? What time of day? Because you don't want to try to figure that out when you're in the sky burning gas and you have X amount of minutes. So static photography is your most important thing to master before you're worrying about ground to air or air to air photography. So okay. What's the most common one. aviation photography mistake that you see? 
you do what the guy next to you is doing. That's all photography. <laughs> well, yeah. it, 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 it doesn't end here. Uh, the, uh, the, the, if they are going to go to number two is you don't respect the aircraft. Okay. All right. Uh, your favorite compositional rule. None. Okay. Favorite whiskey with or without any. Oh, neat. Blanton's. <laughs> yeah, I had to throw it in there. I had to. So final question. Okay. Is there a photographer that people may not know about? And if they don't know about, they should know about. It comes into the, the genre of uh, aviation. It's Paul Bowen. Uh, he's quieter now. He's gotten older, uh, as we all do. But he's kind of the, the forefather for all the modern stuff we do when it comes to looking at the Jay Maisel recipe for this stuff. You know, that, that light, gesture, and color, which is just as important in aviation photography as everything else. Okay. Makes total sense to me. So if people want to know more about uh, Moose or links to Moose's work or see a small gallery of Moose's work or a little blurb that I wrote about Moose, go to BehindTheShot.tv, find this episode. All the links and everything are there. They'll be under the YouTube video as well. But if people want to know more about your aviation photography seminar, which is happening in theory, two days after this show was released, so act quickly, although again, the, the recording may be available uh, sometime after. Where do people go for that? Moosepeterson.com. I keep it simple, stupid. So take my word, no spaces. It'll all come up, click, click, and you're there. Okay. So moosepeterson.com. Also, your aviation photography is at warbirdimages.com. Dot com. Dot com. Mm -hmm. And it's Moose Peterson everywhere on social media, which makes it really simple. Yep. That is that way I can find myself. Well, yeah. <laughs> I've had days. I've had days where that was more difficult. Moose, thanks so much for doing this again, man. I really, really appreciate it. Steve, you are the best. So thank you and thank your audience. Uh, they're lucky to have you around. So thank you. Well, thank you for the kind words, sir. So to everybody, if you have not been to the website before and you want to find out more information about this episode, about Moose or any of my guests, again, it's behindtheshot.tv. If you want to see my work, it's at stevebrazel.com. It's same as the country Brazil, but it's two L's. And if you go to social media, the podcast is at behindtheshottv on either Instagram or Twitter, and it's at stevebrazel on Instagram or Twitter. And last thing, don't forget about the Wanderers Photo Workshop. It's coming up in uh, October in New Orleans. Four instructors, all inclusive pretty much. A few exceptions. Go to the website, wanderersphoto.com, for all the details on that. And YouTube viewers, please really head down, hit subscribe, give a thumbs up, all of that type of stuff so that uh, you are aware when everything you know new comes out, whether it be, again, a critique show or a, a normal episode of Behind the Shot. This is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers like Moose Peterson to better understand the choices that they made. I'm Steve Brazel, and we'll see you on the next show.